Welcome to AFSPA Talks, a production of the American Foreign Service Protective Association. Each week, we deliver informative health and wellness topics you want to know about, so be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast channel. And if you have any questions about content discussed in this episode, ask them at AFSPA Live, our live Q&A session streaming every last Thursday of the month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on youtube.com slash Cares. Now here's your host, Chief Operating Officer, Kyle Longton. Hi, and welcome to AFSPA Talks. I'm your host, Kyle Longton. It's August, and for many of us, that means we're preparing for back to school. And with that in mind, AFSPA Talks and our AFSPA Live later this month will be focused on children's health. So longtime listeners of this podcast might recall that I have three kids. Twins are entering first grade this year, and my youngest is starting preschool. All of them are entering new environments after some COVID-related delays, and that means that there's been a lot for us to prepare. We are dealing with a lot of changes and adjustments, um, and some of that includes some visits to the doctor, some um, seeking out resources for some of the feelings that all of us are having about changes, um, including anxiety and fear and even excitement. Um, as I'm getting things ready for my family, I am hoping that we at AFSPA can provide some help to you and your family. So to kick things off this month, we put together a few clips from two past episodes of this podcast. Um, these were episodes focused on sort of preparing to um, welcome a child as well as um, a broad overview of um, healthcare for children. So first up, we have some excerpts from my conversation with Dr. Joanne Armstrong, Chief Medical Officer for Women's Health and Genomics at CVS Health. She and I talked a bit about how to set the stage for successful pregnancy and birth um, that would lead to better outcomes and a healthier newborn. If you're interested, you can find our full conversation on November 15th, 2021 in the Talks feed. And then after that, we are sharing some information from my interview with Dr. Elena Pearl Ben-Joseph, a pediatrician and medical editor at the Center for Health Delivery Innovation and KidsHealth.org and the Nemers Children's Health System. Last August 23rd, we talked about back-to-school wellness, vaccines, preventive care, and some resources that might help you and your family. The full episode, which you can also find in our feed, included an extensive overview of our understanding of COVID's effects on children at that time. Um, I encourage you to listen to it if you're interested. But for right now, let's go ahead and begin with some information from my conversation with Dr. Armstrong. I want to start out with sort of a broad question. Knowing that each person is different and each pregnancy is going to be different, can you share with us some common elements of a healthy pregnancy? What what is the goal when we're looking at, at healthy pregnancy? So great question. A healthy pregnancy actually begins before pregnancy. It really starts with the intention of every uh, woman and family for, uh, you know, what they what they want to do from a reproductive perspective. Um, it's important to note that about half of the pregnancies in the U.S. are not planned. And by not planning, there's a lot that is lost. One of those things is just the timing of pregnancy, right? It's, it's good to plan pregnancies when you're emotionally ready, financially ready, and importantly, physically and physiologically ready. So not planning misses that opportunity. Um, the other thing that's important is pregnancies that come close together 
that is not well spaced or not having optimal interconception uh, spacing can have some medical complications on their own. For example, uh, births can be, babies can be smaller. Um, uh, some women have increased rates of uh, preterm birth. The other thing that's really important in planning pregnancy is uh, women have, on average, about 10, uh, 10% of women have some chronic condition that they go into pregnancy with. And uh, this period is the time to really optimize that. So, and some of these things actually can get worse because the physiology of pregnancy can make them worse. Um, and, uh, and so they need to be optimized beforehand. You know, a few examples of that. Yeah, that'd be great. You know, yeah. So a few examples of that are, um, women, um, for example, women with chronic hypertension, there's some medications that are dangerous, uh, to take during pregnancy because they can have effects on the development of the, uh, of the baby. So you would want to change those medications before you could become pregnant. Um, for women who have uh, uh, chronic depression, for example, or some other um, behavioral health uh, challenges, those medications also uh, may not be, some of them may not be safe or better optimized in pregnancy. Um, in the case of diabetes, uh, where people, uh, women have pre-gestational diabetes, very high levels of glucose. So in other words, diabetes that is not well managed has two, two important effects in pregnancy. One, it can increase the rate of um, miscarriage. And two, it can also influence the uh, development of the fetus and result in, um, in birth defects. So preconceptionally is the time to really get diabetes under control. And then there are a number of conditions um, that are similar, weight management, smoking cessation, et cetera. And so what steps, I mean, we, we've touched on it a little bit, but what, what role might a, a relationship with a, a primary care doctor or a regular relationship with an OBGYN play in, in optimizing um, oneself for, for, uh, in one situation for pregnancy? So one of the things that I um, really advocate it with my own patients is in every visit, just to ask this question. I think clinicians should ask it and women should also be thinking about it. Um, what are my reproductive intentions this year? Would I like to become pregnant? Whether you're going in for a sinus infection or a regular GYN exam, it's just, a, it's just a question that we should ask ourselves. And are we moving in the direction of health? If the answer, well, we should always move in the direction of health. But if we are particularly interested in planning pregnancy, we should have this in our head that, um, you know, many of, uh, many of the uh, challenges that we face take a, a long time to sort of, you know, get control of, whether it's smoking cessation or, you know, completing vaccine series or um, having an, an, a past history of an abnormal pap smear evaluated. So I advocate that patients should think, hmm, what are my intentions this year? And am I really taking care of my intentions? And clinicians should do the same thing. And then, of course, depending on the answer to that, you know, one either, right, thinks about what contraception uh, or family planning might sure. look like if you're not interested in becoming pregnant. And if one is interested in becoming pregnant, it's a question of when would I like to become pregnant? And what steps should I take uh, between sort of now and when I would ideally like to become pregnant? So that's really the starting point. It's a good sort of mental exercise for us to do all the time uh, anyway. And, and once somebody 
thinks that they're pregnant, they they have that first positive home test. You know, what is the what is the next step they should take? Um, they've 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 got the the test in hand. Is it a call to the doctor? Is it a visit? What what is the next step? So the next step really is to pause. Um, you know, congratulate yourself. <laughs> Think about you know, just take these moments right of sort of joy and expectation. Um, visualizing, you, you know, what, what's next. I think that's really important because we often sort of get on this track where it's like you, you know, you just start right away thinking about, I've got a hundred things to do. And it's really important to, to pause, you know, center yourself in your own pregnancy and ask, what is it that I want? Think about that. So uh, some of the things, the choices that can come up, are things like, well, what type of um, what type of pregnancy care model am I interested in? Am I interested in midwifery-based care, for example? Am I, um, I am I not interested in that? Do I have a good relationship with my OBGYN? Is this somebody who hears me, who has enough time for me? You know, not a judgment. Some practices are just really busy. Or they're structured in a way that they're just a lot of physicians and you're not sure that you have a relationship with anybody in the practice. So pause, ask yourself, what is it? What are my intentions here? And um, do some work to sort of think about what model of care you want and what that provider would look like. And there are lots of ways to find information about that, right? You know, Dr. Wikipedia is, <laughs> is one, uh, right? But, um, you know, close friends and ask questions, like really pragmatic questions. How often do I see the same doctor? Do um, does this does this practice? You know, what are the hours? Are they flexible enough that they fit my schedule? Um, did um, you know? Was there time spent to sort of listen to me, to hear me and my voice and what what I want? Um, so there are this number of pragmatic things just to think through um, about what type of birth one wants. Was there something that happened in the last pregnancy? that you really want to reflect on and say, you know, really wasn't the model for me. Um, I, I felt not listened to. I uh, felt rushed. Um, there was something about um, the hospital environment, you know, the way I and my baby were treated together, for example. I'm not saying this to be uh, judgmental in some way. I just want to elevate the issue that we have choices, often have choices. And by taking a few moments to sort of think, what is this experience that I want to have? Obviously, it, it must be safe, um, but is it really centered on me and my choices? Does it fit the type of life that I have? Is there any flexibility in that schedule? Um, and do I have other past experiences that either I've had or perhaps my friends have had that might inform how I want to think about this? So that's the first step. Absolutely. And, and, and I think there sound, I appreciate you saying, take up, take a moment, pause and, and savor that, that news. Um, because sometimes we move right past that, that moment, um, and miss it. And we're making an appointment for the, the first prenatal visit or, 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 um, you know, choosing a doctor if, if we're in a new place, all those things. So, um, I appreciate you, you inserting that in there and then going on to the, the practical matters and, and seeking, um, input from your, your friends and, and others and reflecting on past experiences. So as we're thinking about the goal of, a healthy pregnancy, a healthy delivery, and so forth, there are some complications that can arise during pregnancy. Um, and you've talked about ways to sort of optimize health going into pregnancy and preparing for pregnancy. 
Um, and you touched on some of the possible complications that can can arise. But I'm wondering if you can go a bit more in depth on some of the most common complications that arise during pregnancies and how they are identified and addressed. Yes, for sure. Um, and and I would say that, you know, complications arise in pregnancy. And as I noted, complications could have arisen in a prior pregnancy that have implications for this pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, or women, of course, we, we, you know, come in with our own chronic conditions, et cetera. So um, if, if this is not the first pregnancy uh, for patients, it's important, and they're not going to the same physician, it's important to get your medical records from the prior pregnancy so that that can be shared with your current obstetrician. It really helps the physician really understand, perhaps if there was a preterm birth, what was actually behind that, a complication in urgent cesarean delivery. Uh, there's nothing like having the exact records, maybe the lab values to understand um, what this is, uh, you know, what what happened. So as we enter into prenatal care, the first visit that women have, uh, it's really busy, right? There's a hit, there's a review of your past history. So again, coming in with a coordinated, you know, list of your medical problems, the the medications that you might be on, the pe- the records that you had from a past pregnancy will really help organize that information and actually give you a little more time with a physician to open up the space to talk about these other things that are not necessarily medical. Um, the first visit um, also goes over um, family and, and uh, genetic risk. These are particularly important to have these conversations um, with, uh, with a physician and determine whether there's uh, certain genetic testing that's recommended for you or genetic counseling. So again, bringing that in. Um, I'll also make a plug that November is the time that families, at least in the U.S., families uh, gather around the Thanksgiving table. It's multi-generational. Uh, families, it's our time to ask about uh, genetic conditions that might run through families that actually may have implications in, you know, for your own personal health and for your uh, for your uh, pregnancy. So um, then, once we sort of have an understanding of uh, of the of you know women, um, pregnant people coming in through their past history, past obstetrical history, then we uh, sort of start walking through pregnancy and some of the problems that can happen in pregnancy. So some of the more common ones are um, what's called uh, gestational diabetes. And that is diabetes that happens because of the physiology of pregnancy. Okay. Um, It's different than having it pre-gestational. And sometimes it's hard to um, unwind whether someone who presents with diabetes actually had it before their pregnancy or during pregnancy. But um, upwards of um, as many as 10% of pregnant women will develop um, diabetes, gestational diet, what's called gestational diabetes. Another really important uh, problem in pregnancy is called preeclampsia. And preeclampsia is this really weird form of hypertension that happens only in pregnant women. And it accelerates very quickly. And the treatment for it is delivery. It tends to happen in the later part of pregnancy. It, it occurs in about four to eight percent of women. It is a major cause of preterm birth, low birth weight, and severe complications for um, for mom and for the baby as well. Um, we know what the risk factors are for that, although half of the women don't have risk factors. It's really important uh, about preeclampsia that I really want to make a strong plug for is um, there is a very simple intervention in the form of low-dose aspirin um, that can lower the rate of this you know, really bad disease 
by as much as 30%. Wow. And um, yeah, and what's really important about it is, um, it, and low-dose aspirin is recommended for women who have what are called major risk factors, which include a past history of preeclampsia. So bring your records in, uh, uh, chronic hypertension, diabetes, um, connective tissue disorders, but lupus and things like that. But it's also, um, a, a risk factor is also um, defined as women who have what are called two moderate risk factors. And those are much more common. Advanced paternal age, uh, you know, that proud group that I was a member of as well. So women greater than 35 when they have their child. Women having a first baby. Uh, women who are obese. Uh, women who come from, who have particular stress, environmental stress, or even stress that's related to race, uh, women, African-American uh, women, uh, poor women, it's just, it, it's, you know, it's all under the bucket of stress. But women with two of those moderate risk factors are also at risk. And very often we don't appreciate, you know, that we're in those groups and there's literature that backs that up. So, um important here is to sort of understand this disease, talk to your physician about it. Um, Low-dose aspirin starts early in pregnancy, uh, as early as 12 weeks, uh, and it continues all the way through. So a really important, simple, and very safe intervention to lower the rate of an important disease uh, significantly. But it requires, you know, a discussion and awareness of this and a conversation with your physician. Um, The other thing that I would like, so we've talked about diabetes. We've talked about chronic hypertension and this mm-hmm. preeclampsia, this weird form. Um, I want to, because we are living in the age of COVID, I'd like to um, just take a moment, if it's okay, to talk about COVID and pregnancy. Please. Okay. So um, uh, pregnancy, the, the being pregnant itself is a high-risk group for severe uh, complications of COVID. The reason for that is because um, the physiology of pregnancy, you know, having basically a big uterus, like a watermelon (laughs) in your your abdomen, makes it hard for us to breathe, right? We can't, our lung excursion Mm -hmm. is decreased. And pregnancy is also a kind of a relatively immunocompromised state. When you think about it, this beautiful thing that is the physiology of birth, we have to kind of suppress a little bit of our immune system to grow a baby that's not actually antigenically immunologically like us. Um, And so that makes pregnant women more susceptible to severe respiratory infections, particularly so COVID and flu. Um, So COVID and flu both are recommended for a vaccine um, uh, during uh, pregnancy. Only about 30% of women are vaccinated in pregnancy. Half of those come in as vaccinated preconceptionally. So again, the importance of preconception care and the importance of COVID is that half of our pregnancies are not planned. It is a risk factor for bad things to happen. And those bad things that can happen to pregnant women are they have much higher rates of hospitalization, the requirement for ICU admissions, requirement for, um, uh, for intubation and respiratory support and maternal death. And their babies also have a higher rate of adverse problems in pregnancy related to preterm birth. Um, low birth weight infants, et cetera. So um, really important uh, to get um, COVID vaccinated. It is recommended by every professional college that is devoted to the safety and the health of pregnant moms and their babies, pediatricians, 
you know, recommend this um, as well. And it is safe. There's now a lot of emerging data that it is safe in pregnancy. And and I so appreciate that because there were questions. I think I've I've heard people in my own life say, "Oh, I don't know if it's safe to while I'm trying to conceive or while I'm pregnant." And and I so appreciate having you here as an expert and confirming the data that's out there and sharing it that it is safe. And I think there's there are also other vaccines that you would recommend um, from a previous conversation we've had for those who are pregnant, and I think also those who would be around a, a newborn. Um, what are the the there's two particular vaccines that we talked about before, the the flu and the Tdap. Is that right? That's right. So flu or seasonal flu um, uh, virus is um, is is a problem in pregnant women for the same reasons I just talked about the physiology of pregnancy. So pregnant women have a, are a high risk group for requiring hospitalization due to flu. So all pregnant women are recommended to get the flu vaccine. Um, during flu season. So, you know, beginning in October, um, it is safe. It's been, uh, we, that vaccine recommendation has been in place for many, many years in the U.S. Millions of women are vaccinated every year for flu and very safely. On average, though, only about 50% of women um, get vaccinated for flu. And some of the reasons for that are OBGYNs generally are not vaccinators in the way, you know, family docs are. Uh, for example, so um, if you're, you know what, you know, here for for um, for people who are listening to this, <clears throat> excuse me, um, ask about flu vaccine. If your physician does not vaccinate, there are lots of places to go. Um, CVS Health, you know, the the pharmacy counters are there. The minute clinics, um, there are flu clinics, you know, vaccine clinics, you know, all over the place. It's really important. Um, and very safe. The second vaccine recommendation is called Tdap, and it's um, for the the PN Tdap is for pertussis, which is whooping cough. Um, and whooping cough is another important infection that um, it, it, in pregnant women, but particularly their infants, it's one of the leading causes of viral hospitalizations for newborns. And we vaccinate moms. Because um, by vaccinating mom, you provide passive protection to babies. And this is true for flu, for, um, for pertussis, and the data is emerging that it is also true for COVID. So how does this work? A baby's immune system is not fully formed at birth. It is, you know, it develops over the next um, months. And so babies are susceptible to respiratory infections when they are born. Um, so uh, vaccinating mom, actually <clears throat> those antibodies that the mom antibodies are what protect us against uh, invading viruses, they get passed um, through the placenta to the mom, uh, to the baby rather, and then it protects the baby during this critical period of time where they are too young to be vaccinated, but it gives them a bubble of protection around them. So for these three vaccines, very important in pregnant women. Fantastic. And I'll, I'll just note for our listeners, all of those vaccines covered at 100% by Foreign Service Benefit Plan, as well as other federal plans. And, and as Dr. Armstrong noted, available at pharmacy counters, at, at minute clinics, and, and um, with your, your primary care physician, um, likely. So please seek those out. Now, I want to turn to my earlier conversation with Dr. Pearl Ben-Joseph, um, where she shares some basics on preventive care, screenings, and vaccines for kids. 
And I think about back to school, I think about wellness visits, maybe some vaccinations, maybe vaccination records that we've got to turn into the schools, sports, physicals, and so forth. Um, now, I know from our, our health plan side and anecdotally that um, healthcare utilization was down in 2020 and even into 2021. So a lot of people put off preventive care, including children. Um, what in, in your experience, in your, your um, understanding of, of what your colleagues are doing in their clinical practices and so forth, have you seen evidence of delayed care in pediatrics? Yes, absolutely. I think not in not just in pediatrics, yeah. it's been across the board, but it's very true. The pandemic has uh, definitely led to delays in preventive care visits and in vaccinations, partly because families were told to stay home, <laughs> especially at the be- beginning of the pandemic, we were shut down or locked down um, as a measure to stop the spread. But even when families were asked please come in, you know, bring your child to get them vaccinated, to have their well-child visits, um, bring your sick children in um, if they're not feeling well. Families were scared uh, for fear of catching the virus. So I've seen surveys that showed that uh, a quarter of all families either missed, skipped, or delayed these well-child visits. And some studies even showed bigger numbers um, as much as maybe half of all visits being down due to the pandemic. Well, and and you mentioned both, you know, the the well-child visits, even sick visits were delayed, but you also mentioned vaccines were delayed and missed. Um, What effects could these delays in preventive care, um, as well as with vaccines, have on either short-term or long-term development? Right. Vaccinations really dropped significantly in all kids right after the pandemic started. And It looks like the younger kids are now getting vaccinated again, but the older ones still have a decrease in vaccination rates, unfortunately. And this puts them at risk for vaccine preventable diseases. Um, Let's talk about vaccines that kids routinely get. I think it's really important. Babies get a whole bunch of vaccines for diseases that we really hardly ever see anymore because the vaccines have prevented them. So things like tetanus, diphtheria, whooping cough, polio, measles, mumps, rubella, you know, just a whole slew of um, illnesses that have been prevented due to vaccines. And there's also some infections that we do see, hepatitis, um, which are viral infections or um, chickenpox, definitely mm-hmm. flu, but vaccines really have brought those numbers down of those infections. Um, some vaccines fight bacteria that used to cause awful diseases, um, severe pneumonias, meningitis, those vaccines are called, um, or those bacteria are called pneumococcus or haemophilus that I remember learning about in medical school way back. We don't see them anymore. We just, you know, so it's incredible. The um, 14 potentially very serious diseases um, in kids are prevented by vaccines. So, and, and vaccines are actually given according to a specific schedule based on how the children's immune system will respond to them at various ages and how likely kids are uh, to be exposed to that particular disease. So delaying the vaccines, as I said, can leave kids vulnerable and unprotected, specifically when they're most likely to have uh, serious complications from these diseases. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Whooping cough can be just an annoying cough in a, in a teenager or in a, an adult. They call it the 100-day cough. It's a nuisance. But for a baby, it can really be deadly. 
So that's why we give whooping cough vaccines when they're babies early on. We don't wait until they're older. The key is to give the vaccines before the child uh, has a chance of getting exposed to the disease. Uh, we don't wait until a car crashes to then put on our seatbelts, right? We put the seatbelt right at the beginning of the ride. So it's the same with vaccines. We want babies to get them long before they're actually exposed. Right. And and I want to return, we'll, we'll probably return to the topic of vaccines a little bit later when we dig in on COVID. But just to, to touch on um, you know preventive care again, there are a lot of screenings that happen um, in those preventive, those well-child visits. Are there effects on short-term and long-term development that, that we're seeing or may see because those, um, those visits have been missed? Well, short-term, maybe we can talk about. Long-term is a little yeah. bit harder because we yeah. need to study that over the long-term. But definitely well-child checkups for preventive care are times that pediatricians will screen for developmental problems. For example, we might catch delays in speech or in walking or problems with feeding or problems with growing. Um, we might uncover depression or anxiety or other mental health problems. And we've certainly seen those more than ever during the pandemic. Uh, you know, and children uh, short-term might end up in the emergency department with, let's say, for example, depression or anxiety, statuses that are much more severe than had they been caught in, at an earlier stage. Um, but besides development, um, pediatricians will also screen for medical conditions that might otherwise go under the radar because they don't always cause symptoms. So for example, um, we'll measure blood pressure, listen for heart murmurs, feel the belly to make sure there's no masses or you know anything that's enlarged. We'll check vision, we'll check hearing. We also send children for tests to look for things like anemia or lead levels in the blood. So all of these things are things that parents don't see and, and will miss if they don't actually go for their well-child visits. And I'll give you an example. I heard a lot of stories about leukemias that were not caught in time. Children showed up to emergency, part, emergency departments when they were already very symptomatic um, and they were just simply missed because the parents were scared to come in or maybe they had had an early form of telehealth that was just by phone and it wasn't, didn't have really um, yeah. proper physical examination. And parents might not notice how pale a child looks or the paleness of the red around inside the eye. That's part of what pediatricians are trained to catch. So definitely short-term illnesses may have been missed. Longer term, we're gonna have to wait and see what happens with kids' development. And, and I appreciate that you touched on some of the behavioral and mental health pieces that we're seeing. And, and we've addressed that in some of our previous episodes of this podcast. So um, you mentioned that there are screenings that take place at various ages for behavioral health issues um, and that those you know, well-child visits play a, a role in diagnosing that. And I'm particularly thinking of the effect of the last year, as you mentioned, that depression and anxiety have emerged. Can you expand a little bit on what you, what what you're seeing in your research and what, what clinicians are seeing um, in their treatment? Absolutely. Well, as I said before, we've seen an uptick in mental health problems in kids over the course of the pandemic. And well-child visits and timely sick kid visits are really essential in discovering these things early on so that we can get a head start on assessing and on treating. So let me re-emphasize how important the well-child visits are. Um, as I mentioned earlier, pediatricians will assess development informally at every visit. They'll ask about a parent's concerns, they'll observe the child, they'll ask about the home environment, but they also do more formal and in-depth developmental um, and behavioral screening for all kids during the well-child visits at ages nine 
18 and 30 months. And on top of that, they'll screen specifically for autism spectrum disorder um, before a child turns two. So that's for the littles. <laughs> um, but they continued, we continue to screen older kids for development, for behaviors. Uh, in teens, we start to screen for depression. Um, we'll assess for things like ADHD, you know, if the child is hyperactive or inattentive. If they're struggling in school, we might assess for learning disorders. So I want to take a minute because I, I'm a parent of young children myself, and sometimes I'm not sure where to turn to. And, and Google will give me all kinds of answers, but I don't always know about the, the usefulness or the origin of those answers. So I want to talk about a resource that you've helped to build, and that's Kids Health. Um, that's actually how we connected was through your work on Kids Health and that AFSPA and, and our Foreign Service Benefit Plan have long promoted this resource for our members. Can you briefly, because um, there's a lot on there, but can you briefly share with our listeners what kind of information they can find on Kids Health and, and maybe even a little bit about how that information is put together? Sure. So Kids Health is a free website, can be seen and accessed by everyone. Um, it's put together by a fabulous multidisciplinary group that includes medical professionals who edit the material, um, experienced health writers, editors, illustrators, um, IT technicians, a marketing team. Uh, we have just all kinds of people who work together to create information about children's health available by topic, by age. We actually have three audiences. We speak to parents, we speak to teens, and we speak to kids. And actually we have a fourth audience. We also create educational materials for educators, for teachers. And the topics run the gamut from anything to do with children and their health. So it could be illnesses or injuries. It could be just development, uh, behaviors, emotions, first aid, um, fitness, food, uh, you name it. <laughs> There's even recipes um, and, and games for kids. So, um, you know, I think your listeners should just check it out. Visit kidshealth.org and, and explore it. Yep. And, and I think this is really an underutilized resource, at least in, in my circle of uh, parents of, of kids, my my kids age. Um, but I, I have started using it. Um, I'm excited. My, my kids are very interested in helping me cook. So we'll be trying some of the recipes and trying to get them engaged. So um, I appreciate the work that you and your colleagues are doing because it's a, a fantastic resource. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of AFSA Talks, and my thanks to Dr. Armstrong and Dr. Pearl Ben-Joseph for sharing their expertise with us. You can find more information at kidshealth.org and on our website, afspa.org. Also, subscribe to this podcast and uh, prepare to tune in for the AFSPA Live the last Thursday of this month at 11 a.m. Eastern. This has been AFSPA Talks, a production of the American Foreign Service Protective Association. All information offered in this podcast is meant to be educational, and the views expressed by the host and guests are their own and do not necessarily represent AFSPA. Should there be any discrepancy between information offered in this podcast and official plan documents for the Foreign Service Benefit Plan or the other products offered by AFSPA, the policy provisions will prevail. Thanks for listening, and again, be sure to subscribe to AFSPA Talks to catch our next episode, and watch our social feeds on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Look for at Aspa Cares, as well as on YouTube, youtube.com slash AspaCares, to see upcoming events, including Aspa Live. See you next time. Thanks for joining us this week on Aspa Talks. 
be sure to subscribe to our channel so you'll never miss an episode. If you have any follow-up questions about the topics in this episode, join our Ask the Live Q&A session on the last Thursday of every month. We will be streaming live on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash AFSPACARES at 11 a.m. Eastern Time to answer your questions. Thanks for listening.